Well, good morning, guys. Glad you're here. I am so proud of you guys. It's cold, winter weather, and you probably stayed up and watched the game, but you showed up, so I'm, I'm glad. Um, we got a lot to cover, as usual. If you got your Bibles, open them up, and we're going to start actually in chapter 34. We're kind of going to go backwards this morning. That's kind of the way my brain works. So we're going to start in chapter 34, then we're going to go back to chapter 24, but our main emphasis is going to be on chapter 32, believe it or not. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into it. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a warm place to come and eat a warm meal, fellowship with guys who love the Lord, and I pray this morning that we would see you in might and power, all your glory, that we would understand who you are, how great you are, how loving you are, how gracious you are, but Lord, also how powerful and how righteous you are, how holy you are. Don't let us miss miss that in this morning's lesson. And Lord, would you show yourself to us today so that we might live like you're with us every day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, no matter what's going on, you are with us and help us to see that. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So in chapter 34, I just want to look at two verses. Actually, we'll start in verse five. This isn't going to be on the screen, but um, I want to start here because uh, it's significant what Moses is going to say. He's going to have a, a unique experience He's going to go up on the mountain, and he's going to see God. He's going to actually get to see the glory of God. It says in verse 5, The Lord descended in the clouds, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and this is significant, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then look what happens. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worship. So why am I starting there? Well, we're going to look at a passage this morning, and it's a, it's a, a major part of the book of Exodus. And it's, it's probably one you're all familiar with, and it's going to be in chapter 32. And it's going to reveal the real Israel. Um, We live on this side of the cross, and we have the New Testament, and so we have the completed canon of Scripture, and so we know the whole story. We know the whole history of Israel. We've been able to read their story. We know how stubborn, how disobedient they are. We know that eventually they're going to end up in the land, and then they're going to end up in captivity in um, Assyria and also in Babylon. So we know their story. We know they're stubborn. We know they're sinful. We know they're stupid. We know they do things they shouldn't do. We know all of that. But at this point in the story of Exodus, we're not really sure what their relationship with God is like yet. There's still some questions that they have. And so we almost want to see the real Israel stand up. Show us who you truly are. Now we have seen them show allegiance to God, right? We've seen it three times where they have said, we will do. Chapter 19, verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said this after God said, I am going to make you my treasured possession, and you will become for me a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And they said, we're all in. Good to go. They didn't have the law yet. They hadn't received any of the word from God yet. And yet they said, we will do. You skip forward a little bit to chapter 24. 
And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They say it again. This is after they get the Decalogue, the 10 words, and after they get the Book of the Covenant, and after God articulates the covenant relationship with them. So they confirm it again. And they do it a third time, chapter 24, verse 7. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Now we've looked at that, and we know that they're going to have a hard time with this commitment, right? They've been given the law. They know exactly God's expectations. He's also said, I'm going to give you an angel, a messenger, who's going to go before you, and you have to obey him. We looked at that last week. And they're going to struggle with this. They want to, right? I don't think this is insincere. They want to be obedient. They want to be faithful. They want to do the right thing. But what do we know? We know it's impossible, right? We, we know that because that's what the scriptures teach us. We also know it by experience. We know none of us can live a righteous life apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit. But see, they don't know that yet. They think they can be obedient. So back in chapter 24, God's going to call Moses up to the mountain, and he's going to call him into a deeper relationship with him. This is all about relationship. This entire book is about God wanting to reveal himself to the people of Israel and continually to Moses. I want you to know who I am. I, I want you to know how powerful I am, how holy I am, how righteous I am, how gracious I can be, how merciful I can be. I want you to know all of me. So he says, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. God is going to give him his handwritten copy of the law. And he's inviting this guy, Moses, to come up so that he can now give him what he has literally written with his own fingers, we'll see. See, this is what you got to keep in your mind, this image of this mountain. We know that on the top of the mountain, God has descended in a cloud, fire, smoke, there's thunder, there's lightning. And how did they describe it, the people of Israel? It's a consuming fire. That's their God. And it's scary. They don't want anywhere near the mountain. They don't want to come near it. And he, even God has said, if you come near the mountain and touch it, I will kill you. So this is their view of God. And God invites Moses to come up, to come up into that, into that cloud, into that storm that's taking place at the peak of the mountain. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. Now this time, we saw last week, he went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, he went up with the 70 elders. This is a different occasion. This is Moses going up and he takes his assistant, Joshua. And he goes up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, those men, those 70 men who went up and had a meal with God, he tells them to stay behind. Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. Here's something interesting that I, I just really discovered this morning. I, I love the scriptures. I, I, it never ceases to amaze me what you can find when you look. And so just this morning, I was looking at this passage again, and it says that the cloud covered the mountain for six days. And Moses is going to enter the cloud on the seventh day. Why is that important? It's the Sabbath. He's going to enter into God's rest on the seventh day. 
He's going to enter into God's presence. And he's called up into the cloud on the seventh day. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Now, now again, keep this in your head. Where are the people down below? They're down in the valley. What do they see? Devouring fire. What does Moses enter into? Devouring fire. He goes into the literal presence of God. He enters the cloud and they can't see him anymore. Joshua can't see him anymore and he's close. He, it's like somebody walking into a fog and you can't see them. What do they see? Devouring fire. What does he enter into? Devouring fire. That incredible presence of God. And it says Moses were there, was there for 40 days and 40 nights. Now again, two different scenarios going on here. People in the valley, what do they see? It's still that same scary God of Mount Sinai that they're not really sure they want to come dwell in their midst. And Moses has gone up into that. That's what they see. And 40 days goes by. So what are they going to assume? Day one, day two, day three, you know. Yeah, he's gone. He's dead. He has been what? Consumed. He's gone into the mountain, never should have gone, never should have gone. This is exactly what we knew would happen, and he's gone. 40 days and 40 nights, and he's out of sight, out of mind. They've long ago forgotten about Moses. They, they just can't, well, I don't know where is it. You think he's coming back? I don't know. I guarantee you they're putting bets on this. I, I don't think betting is anything new. I think they're putting bets down on how many days he's going to be. I got 30, I got 40, and they, but most of them don't believe he's ever coming back because he's been gone for over a month up in the cloud. You know, the idea of him surviving on a mountain that doesn't have a cloud on top of it like that is pretty nil because what's he going to eat? How's, where, where's he getting his water from? How is he going to survive? He must be gone. And he's left his brother Aaron in charge. He's also left, what, the, the 70 elders down there. So he's got Aaron, he's got Nadab and Abihu, his sons, he's got the 70 elders, and he said, you know, while I'm gone, these guys are in charge. If anybody has a problem, come to them. And so everything's gone on as usual. But what's really interesting is that angel that we met last week. Remember the angel of the Lord that he, he said, you need to obey. Has he gone anywhere? No, he's still there. I don't know what he looks like, but he's not left. He's not vacated the premises. So you still got the fire up on top of the mountain. God's not gone anywhere. You still got the angel of the Lord. You've got the 70 elders. You've got Aaron and his two sons. You've got all this representation of God's presence. And yet they're going to begin to doubt, to doubt that God's really there. That blows me away. But then I have to go, would I have done the same thing? Heck yeah, I'd do it now. It doesn't take anything for me to doubt God's presence that he's not really here, he's not near, he's forgotten me, he's, he's vacated the premises. These people had every reason in their minds to for, forget that God's there and to doubt that he's near. They could still see the cloud, they could still hear the thunder, the smoke was still there. The angel of the Lord had gone nowhere. They still had Aaron, they still had the 70 elders. But see, when they look at the mountain, this is what they see. The glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called Moses inside the cloud into his presence, into his rest. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain though, it appeared like a consuming fire. 
That's their whole perspective of God at this moment. And sadly, there are, there are people who go to our church on all three campuses who believe that what? That's God. He's just a consuming fire. He's just a God who judges and punishes. He's an unhappy, dissatisfied God who I can't ever please. There are people who still believe that about God. And that's exactly where these people are because that's all they could see from the valley was the fire, the smoke, and they call it a consuming fire. It literally means to eat, devour, to, to just consume That's their view of God. He's a judging God. He's a harsh God. He is a holy, righteous God, and he will consume us. Now, where did they get that? It's not just from the fire, right? It's from the law. They had been given the law. They had the Decalogue. They knew those commands that God had given, and it produced in them fear because the more they heard from God, the more commands he gave them, the more he told them, you need to obey this angel or die, it produced in them not joy, not an attraction to God, but a fear of God. They wanted to distance themselves from God. The more they got to know this God of Sinai, the more fearful they became. And so they, like us, what they tend to do is that, okay, I want to minimize that. I want to, I don't, I don't like that God. So I want to come up with a different version of that God. And that's what this whole passage is all about. See, they had heard the Decalogue. They knew the 10 words of God. They knew the terms of the covenant. And the more they heard, the more fearful they became that we can't pull this off. I don't know that I like this God. And when God said, I want to come dwell with you, which we looked at last week, that didn't stir up joy in their hearts, right? It wasn't like, man, I hope he comes, lives next door to me. No, I don't want a consuming fire living next door to me. So you have to understand that this is their warped view of God. It's warped, but it is their view. Because what did he tell them? If you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. What's the caveat here? If you obey me. Well, what if we don't obey you? Then all bets are off. That's what they understood. That's the way they conceived of it. And so for them, it was like, I don't think we can do all this. We've said it three times, but we don't think we can pull this off. And they're beginning to fear. 40 days goes by, 40 nights goes by. Moses is nowhere to be found. And what's their connection with this God? It's Moses. See, he's the one who showed up back in Egypt and said, hey, this God Yahweh has sent me and he wants to set you free. And they're going, who's Yahweh? They see Yahweh as his God. And I think what we see in this passage is he's not yet their God. And the more they get to know this God and find out more about his personality, the less they want a relationship with this God. That's what's going on in this passage. See, here's what God said to them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's made it painfully clear, perfectly clear that you will not worship other gods. Now, why is that an issue? Because all the time they had lived in Egypt, they had worshiped other gods. So when he gave him the Decalogue, he made it really clear. You will have no other gods. He went on. You shall make not, not make for yourself a carved image. 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God has just laid it out, right? In stark black and white terms, you are to worship no other God but me and you are not to manufacture gods. You're not to make gods and worship them. See, he's laid it out. And this is so important because what we're going to read in chapter 32 should hit us like a brick in the forehead. Why would they do what they do in chapter 32? Well, look, look, he says, he gave it to Moses, all this law. And when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of stone, the testimony were written with the finger of God. He's going to write all of this down in stone literally in stone, engraved with his own finger. Now that should tell you something that that God is pretty serious about everything he's just said. It's not, hey, if you want to, if you think about it, if you feel like it, keep these laws. No, you have to keep these laws. I'm gonna literally write them in stone with his finger, which is a sign of what? His authority. He didn't ask Moses to write it. He didn't ask Joshua or Aaron to write it, he wrote it to show that these laws come from me. They weren't created by any man. Moses didn't come up with these laws. We come up with laws all the time. We have laws in our home. We have rules that we have in our home and that's fine. You know, it's your home. You can come up with whatever rules you want, but no man came up with these rules. So they're therefore an extension of God himself. They represent him. They are a reflection of him. Every one of the laws, guys, is a reflection of the character of God. See, we tend to look at them kind of myopically. We look at how do those laws impact me? What do they do to my life? How do they curb my scene? Rather than what do they tell me about my God? What do they reflect about his character? And he wants these people to know you can't change them. You can't alter them. You can't make them null and void. If you don't like them, you can't just write them off. You know, they they couldn't just take those tablets of stone and take a chisel and scratch out number three. I don't like that one. I don't like this no adultery thing. But you know what the Pharisees did? That exact thing. They took the law of God and they came up, they didn't scratch through them, but they came up with other laws that basically created loopholes so that you could disobey God's law. And Jesus hammered him for it. He, he talked about that you, you have taken the traditions of men, man-made laws, and they've taken precedence over the law of God. What have they done? They've basically taken God's law, recreated it so that they can recreate the God who gave them the law. That's all that's going on in this passage. It, it's people trying to remake God in their own image because they don't like the God that they see. They don't like the rules that God gives them. See, in Deuteronomy 4, 2, Moses is going to tell the people something pretty important that applies to what we're going to see in chapter 32 of Exodus. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. He's basically saying, don't play fast and loose with the laws of God. Don't add to it. Don't alter it. Don't scratch through it. Don't soften it. It's God's law. It is as firm and standing as he is. 
So don't, don't Mickey Mouse with it. Don't play games with it. He goes on, says, you must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods, for they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their God. Here is Moses telling the people in the book of Deuteronomy, which comes later in the Pentateuch, those first five books, He's saying, don't do what they do. Don't do what the nations do because they do detestable things. They literally sacrifice their kids to their idols. Don't replicate that. Don't act like the nations. Don't follow their example. Be careful to obey all the commands I give you. You must not add anything to them or subtract from them in any way. So this, this is later on in the story. This is, this is when they're getting ready to enter into the land and Moses is reminding them, hey, don't forget what God said. Do not add to, do not subtract from his law. And then don't come up with other laws that replicate the ways of the world. See, God's serious. And so in chapter 32, verse seven, look at what it says. And we're gonna start here because I think this helps us understand what happens in the first six verses of this chapter. The Lord says to Moses, who's up on the mountain, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now let's just stop there. Where is Moses? He's on the top of the mountain. How long has he been there? 40 days and 40 nights. In the cloud, in God's presence, while the people are down below. So we've got two scenes going on. And it's like we're watching a movie and we keep flashing back from one scene to the other. What's going on on the mountain? And then what's going on down in the valley? Here we are up on the mountain and God says, you need to go down because something's happening. Your people have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I've given them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now you gotta imagine what this is like. Moses has been in the literal presence of God He's, he's received the tablets from God written with a finger of God. He's probably on, you talk about a mountaintop high. This guy's like, this is, this is so cool. And then God says, you gotta go down. Things have gone to hell in a handbasket down there. And he's like, what? <laughs> this is, this is, yeah, but this is, everything's great up here. And he goes, yeah, but down there, it's, it's gone really bad, really fast. And he says, you need to go down. And he tells them exactly what happened. These people have turned against me. They, they've made an idol, a golden idol, and they're worshiping it. And, and you need to go down and deal with this. And I think this was like a total shock to poor Moses. God says, they've corrupted themselves. They have soiled themselves. They are defiled. They've done it to themselves, God says. Th this word is... So important because God sees them as now damaged goods. And it's all because they've changed their mind about him. And, and, and I need you to see this, guys, because this is so dangerous when we start changing our mind about God. And it can happen in a heartbeat. When one minute we love God and then something happens in our life and we go, oh, yeah, what kind of God is that? What kind of God would let that happen to me? What, what kind of God would allow this devastating thing to take place in my life? See, when you start playing that game, when you start going down that path, it is dangerous. These are the people who said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said it three times. And it's now changed into what? We'll do whatever we wanna do. 
you can make all the commitments to God you want to make and, and even literally sincerely mean it. And then something happens and you go, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do now. I've tried his way. I've done it his way. I've used his will. And you know what? I'm going to try my will out for a while. You know what? You can do it. And you probably have done it and you will probably do it again. But it's not going to work out well. I'll just, I'll just warn you. How do I know that? From experience. And these people are going to learn it. God's going to allow them to make this decision where instead of doing what they said they would do, obey God, they're going to do what they want to do because they don't kind of like what God says. They don't want to obey God. And what they've done is they've chosen autonomy, self-rule. I'm in charge. I don't like what God tells me to do. I don't like his rules. I'm going to play by my own rules. I want to be my own God is essentially what happens in this chapter. And we can throw them under the bus and we can judge them and we can say how stupid they are and how, what a, man, I, what a moron, who would do that? But if you don't use this as a mirror, which is exactly what it is for you to see yourself, you've missed the whole point. Because the reason it is here is so that we might learn not to repeat the same mistake. So God disavows them. He, he basically says, they're not mine. My kids don't act that way. I told you, you're my treasured possession, but you have to obey. And when you stop obeying, it changes. And I love what happens here. They go from chosen people to what? Your people. He, he literally tells Moses, go down to your people. And I find Moses and go, wait a minute. How are they now my people? What did I do? But God is trying to make a point, right? I set them apart. I called them out. I redeemed them from slavery. I've led them to the mountain. I've given them my law. I've recommitted myself to get them to the land. I have done so much for them. They're now your people. Why? Because they have disavowed God. And now God says, I'm going to disavow them. Then he refers to them as this people. That's a very dismissive term, right? They were once his people. Now they're just this people. They're no longer, at this moment, unique. They're no longer set apart. Why? Because they don't live set apart, right? They've made a really stupid decision. He calls them stiff necks, stubborn. They have necks of iron. They, they refuse to listen to what I tell them. I've told them, if you will, I will. And now you've decided we don't want to. So they're stiff-necked and they're corrupted. They're soiled. They're defiled. They have defiled themselves and made themselves non-set apart. They're no longer living like I've called them to live. So what happened? What happened up or down in the valley while Moses was up in the cloud? Well, that's verse one of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. We don't know where he is. We don't think he's ever coming back. So you're in charge. So we're appealing to you. And what do they say? Make us gods. This, this little statement here is, is huge. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew term that is just loaded with meaning. It, it literally can be translated, make to us gods. The, the two is not there in the Hebrew. So it's, it says, make us gods. And I, I think it's got far more meaning than we've typically given it. 
and I'm not alone in that. Many commentators, co- commentators go down this path, and, and really they see it as kind of a Freudian slip. And what's a Freudian slip? Well, here's the definition. A slip of the tongue that's motivated by and reveals some unconscious aspect of the mind. When they say to Aaron, make us gods, they're saying more than they even, I think, realize. We read it and we think, oh, well, what they're saying is, make us, make us some idols, make us something to worship, make us something other than Yahweh. But really what they're saying is, you know, we want to be in control. We don't like that God. We don't like that version of that God, the God of Mount Sinai, the God of law, the God of judgment. So we want something different. And in essence, they're living out Genesis 3, the fall. Many Hebrew commentaries call this their fall, the fall of the Israelites. And they tie it directly back to Genesis 3. Well, what happened there? The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When we did the study on Genesis, we, we looked at this in detail. What I believe is going on here is not just fruit, eat the fruit, and by eating the fruit, you sin against God. He was tempting them to rebel against God, but he's offering them something in exchange for that action. What is he offering them? You will be like God. You will be as God is how it should be translated. You'll be just like God, knowing good from evil. He's promising them what? God-likeness. You can be your own God, and you get to now decide what's right and wrong. See, up until this point, who's telling them what they can and can't do? God. What does Satan say? Don't listen to him. Be your own God. You make decisions what's right or wrong. You decide what you want to do. You establish your own rules. And what do they do? They do it. They eat of the fruit and they, their eyes are opened, it says. And they suddenly know good and evil. They, it's not that they suddenly know, oh gosh, we did something wrong they suddenly realize we can decide what we want to do. Isn't that what every person on this planet wrestles with every day is I want to be in charge. I want to be uh, the decider of my fate. I want to determine my own gender. I want to determine how, how to live my life. You can't make me do anything. We hate rules unless we've established them. And typically if we establish rules, they're always for everybody else and not us. See, this is what's going on in Genesis. It's also what's going on in Exodus. Because what's behind their demand? Make us gods. What's really going on there? Make us a God like we want. And in essence, when you say that, you've become God. So if you, if you try to take God and you try to make God in your image, the kind of God you want, what have you just become? God. Because you've decided what kind of God you want. At the end of the day, this is all about you and I wanting to be in control. See, they're not satisfied with this Yahweh of Moses. Remember, it's his God. I don't like his God. We want our own God because that God demands too much. That God is too strict. He, he holds us back. He's, he's demanding too much and we'll never live up to this. And, and you know what? I don't even like the way that sounds. I don't want to live according to his law. I want to live according to my law, so I want to come up with a new God. Not a God who cramps my style, not a God who holds me back, not, not this party pooper who keeps me from enjoying the things I want to enjoy. So you got to remember, for 400 years, 
They had lived in relative freedom, right? Doing whatever they want to do, worshiping whatever God they chose. And I guarantee they chose the God that best fit their desire. See, if there's a lot of gods, I'm going to choose the one I like. I'm going to choose the one who best fits my lifestyle. And so what they're doing is they're saying, hey, this Yahweh isn't isn't, isn't for me. Let's come up with our own because I can't really relate to that God of Mount Sinai, that judging God, that God, God of law. So what do they do? They decide to remake their maker. And you can sit there and go, well, I would never do that. And I have to push back and go, you do it every day. You basically have your version of God that you like, and then you've got this other version of God that you don't like, and you ignore that one, and you embrace this one. It's why people say, I like the God of the New Testament. What does that mean? It means that you like the more loving, forgiving, gracious, merciful God, and you don't like a God who is harsh and judgmental and strict. And I get it, but it's the same God. We've talked about that for weeks now. What they're doing is only natural to people who don't yet fully understand God. And the sad reality is many Christians don't fully understand God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. Now, who's saying this? Paul in the book of Romans. And he's talking about people who at one time understood that there was a God and understood the presence of God, but they didn't like that God. And so what did they do? They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what the world does? Not everybody's an atheist. I think there are people who believe in God. And if you ask them, they would say, yeah, I believe there's a divine being. I I believe there's some God up there, but they have their own version of what that God is like. And it's probably not the version we worship because they've come up with foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds become dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead become utter fools, Paul says. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. That's exactly what's going on in Exodus chapter 32. Now you gotta keep it in the context. This is the God who came to them in Egypt, rescued them out of slavery, brought the 10 plagues, rescued their firstborn when he brought the death angel over their homes. And then he brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He's helped them defeat the Amalekites. He's done all these things. He's fed them. He's given them water. He's given them manna. He's given them quail. He's done all these things. And yet they're willing to remake him. Why? Because they don't like his laws. They don't like what he demands. And so they want a God they can control. They want a God of their own choosing. Every idol ever made is man-made, right? Think about that. God didn't make it. God doesn't send them. We make them up in our minds and then we make them with our hands. And we have them today. While we don't worship literal idols, little gods that we put on the coffee table. We, we have idols in our lives, things that we've made in, in the sense of to worship, to bring us peace and to bring us comfort and satisfaction. It, it still happens, guys, and they don't exist apart from us. We have to make them. And we're totally, and they're totally dependent upon us. Every God you worship other than Yahweh 
is dependent upon you. Every idol ever made is dependent upon the ones who make it. The scriptures even go on and, and, and sarcastically talk about, you take a piece of wood, you cut it into two halves, and one, one half you burn in the fire to keep yourself warm, and the other half you carve into a statue that you have to literally carry everywhere it goes because it can't walk, and it can't talk, and it can't help you. The absurdity of, I'm going to burn half the, half the wood into, you know, to keep me warm, and then I'm, the other one I'm going to worship. Idols are totally dependent on men, and they're replicable, and they're all replaceable. You can come up with a new one. If that God doesn't meet your demands, if he doesn't answer your prayers, you'll just come up with a new one. And this is what these people are doing. But they're replacing, in essence, Yahweh. And all idols exist for man's benefit, for man's glory. They never exist for their own glory. They only exist and they only are worshiped as long as they do something for me. See, this is how their brain thinks because they've had a boatload of it for 400 years. This is from, this quote is from uh, J.C. Ryle who lived back in the 19th century, but listen to what he says. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own, a God who is all mercy, but not just. A God who is all love, but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody, but hell for none. Then he goes on. A God who can allow good and bad to be side by side in time, but will make no distinction between good and bad in eternity. In other words, there's no heaven or hell. Such a God is an idol of your own, as true an idol as ever molded out of brass or clay. And then he drops this bombshell. The hands of your own fancy and sentimentality have made him. He is not the God of the Bible, and besides the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. This quote is so timely, and it fits chapter 32, but it also fits where, where we live, the time in which we live. All around us, there are people who claim to be believers in God, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who have remade God in their own image. They worship a different God. They worship a different Savior than the one that we worship. And if we're not careful, we can go down the same path because look at what happens in this story. Aaron, when the people come to him, responds to them by saying, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off those rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, what's significant about this? Aaron is the brother of Moses. He's going to eventually become the first high priest. He's, he's not a priest yet but he's gonna act like a priest. And he's gonna do some things that God doesn't tell him to do. He's gonna agree with the people and he's going to make some decisions that are gonna send them down a path towards destruction, literal destruction. And what's interesting is that we last week looked at the fact that God said, I want you to build me a house so that I can come and live with you. And I want the people to pay for it. And they gave their gold and their silver and their fabric and everything that they had in order to pay for this house, which has not yet been built. What does this guy do? He says, no, no, no. Take your gold, your earrings, and I'm going to make you an idol. He basically contradicts the very word of God and tells them to do something else with that gold than what God told them to do. See, the Guess what? The tabernacle has not been built yet. 
And yet he's going to say, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make a golden calf. And then he's going to say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What does he say? He basically says, this is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. This is what you're going to worship. This is really your God. It's not that. It's not that thing, that fire, that consuming fire up on the mountain. This is your God. It's this God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, he's not... He's not getting them to drop Yahweh. He's getting them to worship a different version of Yahweh. See, that's, that's huge. When Aaron saw this statue that he built, he built an altar before it, and then he made a proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord Yahweh. He, he, he literally says, this is now Yahweh. This isn't a new God. This isn't a replacement for God. This is God. This is Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That statement is like the the most condemning statement that can be made about a people who claim to worship God Almighty. It says they sat down to eat and drink. Why is that important? They're celebrating their freedom. Freedom from what? That God. That God who's up on the mountain like a consuming fire. That God of laws They are free from that God because they've come up with their own God. And what they're feasting is their independence, their autonomy. We don't have to keep those laws anymore. We don't have to do what that God says because we got our own God now. And when you make your own God, you can dictate how that God interacts with you. You get to set the rules of your relationship with that God. See, they're not celebrating that they're free from Egypt and slavery they're free to do whatever they want to do. That's really what's happening in these verses. I get to now live as I want to live, according to my rules, according to my version of God. And Stephen, in his sermon recorded in Acts, says this, So they, the Israelites, made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that they had made. They had a celebration of this version of Yahweh. What I love is what Paul says. Paul's a lot more blunt. He says, as the scriptures say, the people Israel celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did. What is he inferring took place back at the base of Mount Sinai? It's basically an orgy. See, their God allowed them to do what they wanted to do. That God said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not do this, you shall not do that. And they're like, we don't like that, but we like this God because now we get to do whatever we want. And they did it. And he makes it pretty clear. Don't follow their example. When we remake God, this is the danger. This is what happens. We, We don't have the authority. We don't have the right. And so God says to Moses, I've seen this people. They're stiff necked. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of them. And that word consume there is the same word for consuming fire. God says, if that's that's their view of me, then guess what? That's exactly what I'm gonna do to them. I will literally consume them. But look what happens, verse 11. Moses implored the Lord as God, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought? Why are you mad at your own people? Moses can't quite understand what's going on. He's still on the mountain. He's still in God's presence. He's not yet seen exactly how bad it is down below, but he says, Lord, Lord, please don't. 
Please hold back your wrath. And he appeals to God's faithfulness. He says, Lord, I know you. I've been with you. I understand you. And I'm going to appeal to you on behalf of the people. I love this about Moses, that he intercedes on behalf of the people. He doesn't slam them. He doesn't go, but just wipe them out. God actually says, I'm going to start all over. I'll start with you. I'll make a whole new nation out of you. And he doesn't go, yeah, man, I'm, I'm all over that. No, he says, no, don't. What he does is he focuses on the bigger picture. He desires to protect God's reputation. See, guys, that's got to be our greatest desire is that it's more about God's reputation than our peace, our comfort. We need to care about God's name. He hones in on God's covenant promises and he puts his hope on the fact that God is faithful. And he says, no, you promised, you said you would. You told us you would get us into the land. I need you to be faithful to your word. And God says, I will be. Now we could spend weeks talking about whether he changed God's mind. I don't believe you can change God's mind. I, knew, I think God did this as a test for Moses, not himself. He wanted to see how Moses was going to respond. Do you believe I'm faithful? Are you willing to bail on the people? And so he says, I will destroy them for what they did. He already said, that's what will happen if you disobey. And he wants to see if this leader will step up and stand up for the people of God. And he does. See, Moses knew that God was great. He was well aware of God's holiness and transcendence. He was intimately familiar with God's power. He also had grown to understand God's unwavering faithfulness. So as a result, with the plans for the tabernacle in his hands, Moses longed to see it take form in the valley below. He wanted to see the people experience what he had experienced. He had been with God. He had been in the rest of God. And he wanted the people to understand that. But if God destroys them, that's not going to happen. He wanted them to know and experience the joy of God's presence. So he went to the mat with God and urged him to display his faithfulness once again in a big way. See, here's, here's what's significant to me. When I see what's happening in the world, and even when I see what's happening in the church, it's part of my heart to say, God, just bring down your judgment. Just wipe them out. Wipe out these half-hearted, uncommitted Christians. Just get them out of the church. Just wipe them out. Or is my attitude, show them your glory. Be faithful. Don't give up. Bring them back to you. Help them see the error of their ways and turn back to you. See, I want to be like Moses. I want to be an interceder. I want to be the one who steps in on behalf of the people of God and points them back to God. So I want to start this morning with this topic of faithfulness, and I want you to take a minute just to share one experience in which this week you've seen God be faithful to you. See, I don't think we think about his faithfulness enough. I know I don't. So what's one experience that you've had this week of God being faithful to you in spite of you? And then why is God's faithfulness one of his most overlooked attributes? And how can we develop a greater awareness of it? That every day he's being faithful. He never gives up. He never bails on you. He's always faithful, but we don't think about it. And then finally, how are we guilty of manufacturing a God of our own? Why is it important to accept God as he is and not try to make him into the God we would like him to be? And we all are guilty of it. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Moses. I thank you for the people of Israel and what a picture they show me of me and how I can be just like them. 
Lord, I know in so many ways that I've remanufactured you. I have remade you in my image. I want to worship a God that fits my lifestyle rather than the other way around. Would you help me to see you as you truly are and accept you as you truly are? And it's that God that has forgiven me, that God who has redeemed me, that God who sent his son to die for me. And Lord, never let me get away with remaking you in my image so that I can be in control because you're doing a really good job and I need to trust you more. Lord, thank you for these men and I pray you would bless their time around the tables and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.